0: This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. The fascination with the British monarchy never seems to wane. Even those professing disinterest can't help but gaze in that direction. Two and a half billion people watched Princess Diana's funeral. 1.9 billion watched Prince Harry's wedding to Meghan Markle, and even 49 million people tuned in to Meghan's interview with Oprah. Yet even with all that, a thorough understanding of the royals, their upbringing, their challenges and foibles, The stories behind the stories are hazy or unknown. We now can get a thorough understanding in Tina Brown's The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil. The award-winning, best-selling Tina Brown, admired for her journalistic stylistic accuracy and flair, brings her experience as editor of Vanity Fair and The New Yorker, along with three decades of coverage of the Royals, to create a detailed, riveting portrait. It is clear-eyed, humanistic, and a blast. Tina Brown, welcome to Just the Right Book.
1: So happy to be with you, Roxanne.
0: Tina, one of the um, elements of the book that I really adored and was uh, eye-opening to me was the understanding you brought to the temperaments and anguishes of each of the key families. Um, so I thought we would we would take sort of a thumbnail sketch because I think it really anchors everything else that happens. Um, so let's start with the Spencers because, you know, we had this view of Princess Diana as being just the quintessentially perfect, Uh, woman and family to become an eventual queen but in fact the Spencers were like loaded with complicated problems
1: yes the Spencers were uh a very problematic family they're hot-headed they are uh quarrelsome they are um unwilling to take second place in their history to anyone, including the kings as the times, as the centuries went by. And they also, um, they're very impulsive, very reckless family. But at the same time, having said all of that, Princess Diana's own background was also a very, very riven background. You know, her parents divorced from Francis and Earl Spencer, her mother, Francis um, Fermoy, she was born from an Irish aristocratic family. And uh, uh, and Earl Spencer, that divorce was a really bitter, bitter divorce. Um, Johnny Spencer, as he was called, made her, you know, tormented uh, Francis about the fact she could not give birth to a son. I mean, he was sort of a mini Henry VIII, and she had, you know, five pregnancies that, you know, a couple of which did not uh, were miscarriages or you know stillborns. Um, and you know, she had three daughters before she had her son Charlie. And, you know she was tormented by that and he bullied her and he uh, she was a free spirit she married him very young and then of course she fell in love with this man Peter Shan kidd you know who took her away from all that but Francis never expected to have to lose custody of her children you know the story of Diana you keep hearing her mother walked out when Diana was five uh, well actually her mother didn't walk out she left with Peter Shan kidd fully expecting to try to get custody of her children but Uh, He fought the custody and he won for the most um, bitter reason, which is that France's own mother, Lady Femoy, uh, testified against her daughter because she was a Mm. lady-in-waiting to the Queen Mother, was incredibly uh, uh, sort of valued her royal connections, and she did not want her grandchildren to be brought up uh, uh, in, in any way except as Spencers, and also feared that she'd lose her own position of court. Um, with this very ugly divorce in the family. So she, you know, this bitter this bitter strand in, in their lives. I mean, you know, her mother obviously remained estranged from her mother. And Diana sort of grew up in this very acrimonious uh, family background. And she le- was left kind of rattled around uh thought the stately home uh, with her elder sisters away with her depressed, morose, angry father. It was a pretty unpleasant childhood. And, you know, again, people feel, oh, <clears throat> Diana must have been so to the manner born when it came to entertaining and understanding, you know, the whole kind of uh, royal, uh, you know, grandeur of life. But actually, her father never really entertained until he married um, uh, his second wife, who Diana absolutely detested. And she, you know, w- was was a very sort of um, difficult uh, social climbing woman who disliked the children and they disliked her. And uh, all of this bitterness was part of the freight, you know, that Diana carried around. And what was
0: interesting is the sharp contrast that was to Camilla's family.
1: Yes, Camilla, on the other hand, came from an extraordinarily grounded, uh, loving, supportive family—an uh, aristocratic family that wasn't as certainly wasn't as pedigreed as the Spencers. There were no all thought stately homes in the background of the Shands, but. Uh, her mother uh, was Lady Rosalind Cubitt from a very upper class uh, aristocratic family. Uh, her father, uh, Major Bruce Shand, was a war hero and an extraordinarily popular, uh, sort of um, decent, uh, very, very uh, noble guy. You know, he say he was a war hero in World War II. He, you know, he developed, he had his own wine business, but he was extremely appealing and very much a kind of master of the hunt. Uh, brought Camilla into the world of horses very, very young in her life. And, you know, she used to hunt with her father. She used to love riding. There were the three children, her her brother, Mark, who was an absolutely uh, a heartthrob, uh, beloved by every uh, wo- woman in, in, in London, uh, her sister, Annabelle, who's a decorator. And they were just a very close family. And whenever, you know, Camilla had problems, she would talk to her sister, talk to her father. It stayed in the Shan Circle. Uh, there was always support, there was always love, there was always a place to come home to. Very different from the alienated world of the Spencers. And ironically, Camilla
0: was way more suited to take on a royal role in terms of discretion and uh, comfort with entertaining and the formalities than Diana. How How did Queen Elizabeth read that so wrong? I mean, she's pretty well,
1: no, savvy i mean she liked she always actually liked camilla and and, and the shans but uh camilla wasn't in any way at a level uh that would have been considered as a bride for charles at that time there were two things that were the problem with camilla she was two years older than charles when she met him um in her 20s uh she was known to have already had uh boyfriends and you know was known not to have been you know a chaste uh sort of virgin which you know uh, was really not surprising. I mean, frankly, um, you know, trying to find, uh, you know. <laughs> that, trying to Charles find was, a virgin. Yeah, trying to find a virgin. I mean, I, as, I, as I say in the book, you know, when Charles was 30, trying to find a, a virgin of 30 in, 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 you know, in, in England at the 70s was like searching for the Loch Ness Monster. I mean, you know, <laughs> they had to go lower and lower in their age groups. And there were lots of talk about him possibly marrying, you know, Princess Mary Astrid of Luxembourg. You know, it was thought he was going to have someone with really royal bloodlines. The Queen Mother was a real problem in all of this, you know. She was Charles's most beloved confidant. He was far closer to his grandmother than the Queen, and she really pushed the Spencer uh, match. You know, she'd met young Diana at a wedding uh, with of uh, one of her elder sisters and thought that Diana was a perfect, perfect young girl. You know, from beautiful, uh, charming, you know, very young, but uh, obviously chaste. Uh, you know, for, and um, from this great noble family. So it was a real problem. I mean, Camilla was neither grand enough in in the the view of the Queen Mother and the Queen at that time, but mostly, you know, she was also known to have, as they used to say, been around. And, uh, you know, she'd had a long relationship with uh, this very sort of um, womanizing uh, army, uh, uh, Captain uh, Parker Bowles. um, And she was madly in love with him, actually. I mean, you know, as I write in the book, it's quite possible that she really was, playing Charles simply to sort of get uh, the attention, really, of of Parker Bowles. I mean, she had a relationship with him of about seven or eight years before he married her, and she was very, very keen to get married to Parker Bowles by the time it came around. And Prince Charles was off on a boat in the Navy, and he got the news that Camilla, this this, uh, romance that he felt was going somewhere... Um, uh, she got married and he was absolutely devastated. But, you know, it was his fault because he didn't propose and he wasn't going to go against his parents. And, um, you know, there never really was a possibility of him marrying her. And it was the greatest mistake of all their lives in the sense that had he been Mm. allowed to marry the woman he did love, um, she was his soulmate, you know. And I think things would have gone very, very differently for Charles if he had not been pushed into marriage with Diana, which, you know, tragic as it was for Diana, it was also quite tragic for him yeah
0: and the other the other part of this is that it was fascinating for you to talk about the parallel between camilla and was it her grandmother or great grandmother
1: alice keppel yes her her um her great grandmother alice keppel you should know her grandmother alice keppel no great grandmother alice keppel alice keppel was the mistress of edward the 7th and um You know, she's always loved her lineage to Alice Keppel. She was a, you know, a beautiful, uh, intelligent, uh, charming courtesan. Uh, You know, who Edward VII was the last sort of big love of his life. And, you know, Camilla has many a beautiful portrait of of Alice Keppel. She loves wearing her jewelry. Actually, uh, Prince Charles loves to kind of find missing pieces from the Alice Keppel collection, and give them to Camilla as gifts, you know. So the Keppel connection always piqued Camilla very much and she felt uh, a connection to her. You know, she's always had a royal connection, Camilla. I mean, one of the things that, you know, that she and Charles shared was the same circle of friends, you know, the same interests. I mean, Camilla loves to to ride. She loves to garden. All of her friends are Charles's friends. I mean, they were completely suited is the truth um, in every way, except that at that time she wasn't considered uh, the right kind of wife for him. Well,
0: one of the things that was was remarkable to think about is in reading the book, you you really lay out when some of these tapes were disclosed uh, that about Charles's and Camilla's communications and the fact that their affair had continued, maybe un unbroken uh, between even uh, during his marriage to Diana that they, their Charles's ratings, Camilla's standing was low, ridiculed, mean-spirited and looked like something you could never recover from. And here they are now with Camilla and Charles, both sort of, you know, polished up and if not beloved, certainly having earned a healthy amount of respect, and
1: that was a pretty remarkable shift. Well, it was, and it was, and it was hard won, uh, as I describe in the book. You know, Charles, after the death of Diana, really, his his major sort of focus in life was what was called in the palace, you know, Operation Mrs. Parker Bowles, uh, and the whole uh, necessity was to, in a sense, re- rehabilitate Camilla's image from being you know, the husband stealer, uh, you know, the sort of predatory courtesan, all the things that people thought of her as in England, unfairly, actually, but uh, that's how they thought of her. And the idea was to try to kind of rehabilitate her so that she could be brought into the circle. But one of the issues, biggest issue that he had was his own mother, because the Queen and Philip were just not going to have it. I mean, you know, for decades, um, you know, Camilla was just not, as as, as soon as it was public that they were having an affair. The Queen would made it clear that she could not ever, ever be seen in a room with Camilla publicly. That there would be no way that Camilla uh, would uh, would come to uh, Balmoral or Sandringham or you know, Windsor Castle when the Queen was present. In fact, queen, uh, Prince Charles's 50th birthday. You know, this long-standing girlfriend of 20 years, Camilla, was not allowed to come to his birthday even, which was pretty bitter for her. So it went on for decades that, that they would not tolerate Camilla in the mix. And, you know, frankly, you know, in the end, the Queen just had to capitulate because she realized she came to the point where she saw that two things, really. First of all, that, that uh, if she really pushed Charles and said, OK, either Camilla or you have to renounce the crown, she feared that he would do that. She feared that it would be another abdication situation, that, that, that Charles, she was too indispensable for Charles's happiness to give up. And secondly, because over time she did come to see that Camilla, you know, has been stoic, has been discreet, ha, has been gracious. gracious. Uh, she has never embarrassed anyone. She's really been quite extraordinary, as a matter of fact. I mean, she's in fact in the family. She has been never put a foot wrong. Uh, rather, as the Queen has never put a foot wrong. So that that mm-hmm. really, I mean, Camilla earned. Earned her place uh, essentially in, um, you know, in in the family, and of course, in the seventeen or eighteen years she's been married to Charles, uh, she has been an extraordinarily supportive and uh, gracious wife that has never, you know, never done anything but fulfil her duty. So the Queen is now very fond of Camilla, and she showed that by uh, announcing uh, before the the Jubilee celebrations began this year that it was her wish. Uh, that 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 Camilla would be known as, as queen when uh, her son took the throne. That was an enormous breakthrough because mm. there had been this question mark over Camilla's status. Was she going to be just called consort? Was she just going to be uh, sort of considered to be second, uh, you know, at a second tier to Charles when he became king? But the queen has made it very clear she is going to be Queen Camilla, which is really a remarkable thing. Um, But I think she has earned it. And I think the British people, they're not thrilled with it. But for the Queen, that was a great piece of estate planning. She basically said, let me take that controversy off the table now. Um, She didn't want to leave Charles in a position when he became king. that The very first thing he had to do was to sort of go through the controversy of, uh, you know, elevating Camilla's title. So she's taken that off the table. They've been through that. And it's accepted that uh, Camilla will be queen.
0: Mm. So let's move to the next generation and talking about then and now. You know, it's indelible in many of our minds watching William and Harry walking behind uh, their mother's casket. And it's equally indelible to see portraits of William and Harry now even at important events like Prince Philip's funeral and see this breakdown. And much of the world wants to um, say that Meghan is responsible for that break and we'll get to that a little bit more. But did the deterioration in their relationship actually begin before Meghan was even on the scene?
1: Well, that's what my reporting showed. That uh, certainly, Meghan, it, it you know, accelerated uh, and and ratcheted up uh, when Meghan came on the scene. But they had, having been extraordinarily close all their life, and really were blood brothers. As you know, I mean, they 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 really were each other's support. And Harry did a lot for for William too. I mean, in the sense that you know, we often hear, well, William had his protective arm around Harry all his life, but Harry also was very important to William's whole peace of mind, because he was the only person in his world who could uh, treat him completely like a peer and make fun of him, josh him, uh, uh, you know, allow him to be absolutely normal in ways that really no one else can. Perhaps Kate can, but not anyone else, essentially. So he was enormously important to William. But there became when 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 Harry came out of the army after 10 years, um, you know, his his time there was very successful for Harry. He was a very, a very accomplished soldier, more so than William when he did his service. Uh, he's a great shot, he's a great um uh excellent helicopter pilot, uh, he was beloved by his men. So Harry had a very successful 10 years in the army. He served in Afghanistan twice, he was brave. Uh, you know, it was it was a wonderful thing for Harry. It gave him a place as well to hide almost from the world. You know, he was protected. Uh, from the paparazzi, from all of the gazes of you know, gawking gazes of everybody in the army, and he felt very protected by it. When he came out, you know, his world sort of fell apart because then he had to confront what it is to be the second, uh, the second period. Uh, you know, William had very close to him in age, only two years older unlike Charles and Andrew, who there's a big age gap between. So there was never any sense for for Andrew of kind of rivalry with Charles because Charles was always the big brother who was going to be king. That isn't true with Harry and William. You know, they were very close and they were raised by Diana the same way. And so when Harry came out of the army and had to sort of accept that he was now a second tier and that William was kind of streaking ahead uh, with all of the most uh, interesting assignments he felt and the most, uh, the portfolio of the most uh, prestigious uh, charities and so forth. Harry felt marginalized and he got very angry. He started to get very angry because Charles, Harry has, he, I always feel of the, of the two brothers, you know, Harry's a real Spencer and William has gradually kind of become a Windsor like his grandmother, the Queen, fortunately for the next reign but Harry is so much a hot-headed Spencer. He is classic Spencer, you know, from the red hair to the kind of choleric temperament and the sort of hot-headed ways. He is so much like many of his ancestors. And, you know, he he doesn't do well uh, with being told what to do, frankly, by anybody. And, um, you know, so he really started, first of all, he he, you know, kicked over the Traces tremendously. He's talked a lot about his issues with mental health. He had lots of sort of panic attacks and the need for therapy and uh drinking too much and you know really went into a, a bad cycle but but once he came out of that because he did come out of that with uh, therapy and help he also felt that he had a lot more star power than william which is not untrue you know i mean harry began uh the invictus charity which was his uh philanthropic effort his humanitarian effort to <clears throat> start kind of special olympics for wounded veterans and it was very, very successful. and it had a lot of appeal. you know it caught it caught the warmth of of humanity about it, and people responded to it, and it was very successful. Um, it led Harry to the feeling, you know, wait a minute, i'm I can be a global star. I, I'm a superstar. i'm I have a lot of charisma. And he began to really resent, you know being pushed to one side. and there were lots of rows between him and William about that, about Harry feeling that he wasn't getting the best briefs. There was a tension between them. Uh, that he was sort of being pushed aside and it was tension with his father about feeling that there was tension with William. So there was a lot of tension. And it. it was at that moment that uh, he met Megan and Megan could have helped to dial down that tension if she had wanted, but, but actually Megan dialed it up because Megan wanted to be a big global star. And she said, you know, she she would say, she said to Harry together, you and I, where, you know, we are, we can get, go to the moon together, you know, where we can be in the stratosphere like Diana was being big global humanitarian superstars. And over time, not, not a lot of time either, a few months really, she began to say, we don't need this. I mean, you know, we can do better out of this. And actually, you know, many people in the palace said to me that, you know, there wasn't a lot of surprise that, that Harry wanted to leave. Uh, Because he'd always been so unhappy, actually. And since he came out of the army, he was very, very unhappy. He hated the paparazzi, he hated the press, he hated being shoved to one side as number two. He was just miserable. Uh, But what they never expected him to do was to leave and kind of embrace essentially a greater level of celebrity than the one he had already. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was really a sense, I mean, they all thought that Harry would sort of go off piste and 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 sort of, you know, buy a farm in South Africa and sort of live the life of a, of a kind of, a, you know, sort of someone who was half out in the wilds, as it were, because that's what he loved. They certainly didn't expect him to go and live in Hollywood with, you know, um, to go to Montecito and live with with uh, an actress who, I mean, their le- the level of celebrity coverage that they get now... I mean, it it is in the stratosphere, but not in the way you would think that he would have wanted. But that's what he became and embraced, essentially, because he was deeply really in the thrall of Meghan, who essentially, I mean, you know, one of his kind of close courtiers said to me that, you know, in a sense, uh, Harry was looking for a woman to rescue him, you know, that he was Mm -hmm. looking for, uh, in many ways, he said, you know, this person said to me, um, you know, we sometimes thought that the best thing any wife of Harry could do was to kind of uh, find a way for him to get out of the royal page like provide uh, cover yeah provide cover and help him to 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 further that that desire because essentially harry didn't know how to do it Meghan, who was very um wired into uh the world of hollywood the world of business the world of um you know celebrity brands etc was Accomplished in the ways you know, in the more worldly connections, if you like, that Harry really didn't have. She, she was, she knew how to make that happen. Essentially, you know, deals with Netflix, deals with Spotify. She understood how to do that, which Harry didn't. So essentially, you know, he was very, very impressed and in awe of Meghan's accomplishments, and Meghan helped to get him out. Uh, and uh, you know, so it's not really fair to call call this, rec- you know, Megxit as it were, because I think it was, I think it was both of them very much wanting out. And it was Megan who provided the ability to do that.
2: We all want to learn way more than what we have time for. How many books are on your Kindle list? How many email newsletters do you have unread in your inbox? Short form is an easier way to learn the ideas you've always wanted to learn. Shortform makes the world's best guides to nonfiction books. They're like book summaries on steroids. They're super detailed, so you can get the book's key points at a deep level. They have interactive exercises to help you apply the ideas you just learned, so you don't forget them like I do when I read a book. And they add smart insights, like connecting what one author thinks about another author. You end up understanding the ideas at a super deep level and building these awesome connections between ideas. For a 10-minute overview, check out the one-page summary, which is already better than other apps like Blinkist. Then to go deeper, read the full guide. Shortform also makes guides to important topics you should know, like inflation in the economy, strategies on how to run a better business, and what's happening with Bitcoin. They make these by collecting a lot of sources with different perspectives for a super objective, balanced treatment like Deep Work by Cal Newport, details very specific steps that I can take to focus and resist distractions, like social media, by strengthening my mental capacity, and how these simple steps is vital for our modern economy. I spend 20 minutes each morning reading Shortform to check out new books I've heard of, which helps in determine upcoming episodes of Just the Right Book. So now, to get five days of unlimited access and an additional 20% discount on the annual subscription, Join the short form through our special link, shortform.com backslash book, or click the link in the episode description. Once again, that's shortform.com backslash book. One of
0: the reactions I had, you've addressed that, that Meghan really provided cover for what Harry wanted to do. But it does seem ironic that he ended up with more celebrity which was one of his issues. But it But it made me think that has it inadvertently gone beyond really what Harry wanted? That Harry with a different wife maybe could have navigated staying within the royal embrace but nonetheless carving out his own piece rather than than this which made me think did they overreach or underplan
1: their exit well i think you're absolutely right i think harry could have carved out his own piece as it were uh but the problem was that megan hated every minute of it she just hated it um you know i mean harry had always been you know obviously raised royal he he loved hunting he loved riding he you know loved his country time he loved you know um Megan didn't want to do any of those things uh she she hated all that and found that whole lifestyle completely antipathetic uh, to what she liked and so yes I mean she definitely dialed up his discontents uh, with that situation and actually I mean when they made their exit, they absolutely blew it. I mean, this was, again, typical Harry as a Spencer. He was so reckless and so impatient. You know, when he they went off to Canada, and the Queen, you know, I'm told, was completely supportive of that. If they had said to the Queen, look, we really want a sabbatical for a year, we want to go away to Canada or Africa or wherever they wanted to go, we need this time for ourselves, she would have been 100%. She was mm-hmm. 100% supportive. I mean, she supported them going to Canada and leaving and thought it was a great idea. However, when they said they wanted to essentially uh, stay royal but but, but monetize uh, uh, their royal status, which is what it was, which is what they wanted, they wanted to make very lucrative deals while staying royal, essentially, uh, staying a working royal. You know, Harry keeping his royal patronage uh, all of them, both of them, keeping their royal patronages, staying, uh, you know, uh, in their roles, uh, vice uh, chair, president, and 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 I think president, the titles were of the Commonwealth Trust, where they were where they were, you know, going to be the Queen's ambassadors to the Commonwealth. They wanted to keep those things while making uh, big deals, and of course, it just wasn't viable any more than it is for a major uh, politician. Frankly, I mean, you know, the conflict of interest questions were absolutely enormous, and. The crown is all about service. I mean, being a part of the uh, monarchy and the royal family, it is about service. That is the definition. The definition of service is you don't get paid for it. So, um it just was never going to fly. So, I mean, their intractable demands were never going to get anywhere. And I mean, and actually, the, the mistake that Harry made, as I as I discuss, essentially he offered essentially them an ultimatum and said either we get this or we leave. And mm-hmm. of course, give an ultimatum to Queen Elizabeth II. I mean. Her attitudes was okay. Well, then leave, go, and yeah. they were stu- they were absolutely stunned. I mean, I my reporting showed told me that they really didn't expect that to happen. I mean, they thought they were going to get what they wanted. That there would be such a desire to keep them, such a desire not to have the sort of bad uh, sort of explosion of it all, such a need for them with their kind of star power, etc. In the monarchy, they did not expect the queen uh that you know the whole monarchy basically to say to shut down and say okay so you say it's either or we, we you know we choose all you know <laughs> well and
0: one of the things you know tina that you bring up in the book that was striking is queen elizabeth's capacity to separate her duty to the crown from her role as a sister to margaret or a grandmother to harry I mean, Queen Elizabeth has shown herself to be able to bifurcate those things with duty
1: winning. Uh, you know, I mean, duty always you, wins. Her, 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 what she feels is best for uh, country and crown will always win and always has won with her, even when it's extremely painful. Um, and you know, one of her, you know, in people with, with her said to me, you know, the family members always know when they're going to see the queen in the personal capacity or the formal capacity. Mm. Uh, they know that, you know, the queen is grandmother, mother, you know, aunt, whatever the role in the family is, she is loving, she's fun, she's, you know, absolutely welcoming. But if you want to go to her and talk about something that is going to impact on, you know, the, 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 the status of, of, of the way, how the monarchy is working or, or a position or finances or whatever, you have to recognize that at that point, she mor- will morph into the chairman of the board, you know, and you will go and you will find that there are, you know, private secretaries with notepads and everybody's around a table. It is a formal meeting. Minutes are taken. And, you know, it's like presenting to, you know, to the CEO. It's not, it's not cozy uh, granny uh, or cozy mummy, And they know that. I mean, they've been raised to know that. And so when Harry said on Oprah, um, you know, I, I, I it's all her, the fault of her, you know. He blamed her, her private secretary, particularly, for sort of keeping her from him, from the Queen, and said, you know, I was going to come back. Uh, I had planned to go from the airport from Canada and go straight to Sandringham at the Queen's invitation to have tea. And then, as I, when I landed, I got a message from her private secretary saying that the Queen now had a very full diary for the next few weeks and I couldn't meet with her. And he was kind of has has ranted about that ever since. But of course, the Queen, I mean. he's very naive i mean there's absolutely Mm -hmm. no way that the private secretary would have had made relayed that message without full discussion with the queen i mean basically they talked about it and the queen said you know i want to he's coming to see me but you know you know obviously he's going to be talking to me about all of this and she then would have said please tell him now that i'm busy you know it's Mm. like it's she thought better of it she she thought he wanted to come and see her as grandmother when it became clear that was not why he was going to see her, that he was going to see her her as the queen he was saying he was going to go and try to renegotiate his deal, essentially, but without the pri- the private secretaries around to provide a bulwark. So this is classic uh, CEO deniability in any, in any big enterprise, right? I mean, the 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 boss likes to be have people with him who help him to her to uh, you know to be a gatekeeper and say that let's think better of this for the company, and that's what happened, of course. And he will not accept that. mm. So speaking of the interview,
0: there was a couple of things in that interview that fed one or the other points of view about Meghan. One is, as you talk about in the the book, given her past um, sensibility as an actress and approach, it belies reason that she didn't do research on the royal role her discussion of the inability for her or Harry to get help for her depression or risk of suicide was at odds with the support that they had uh, given Harry when he was struggling. So it it really it really set up the alternate points of view of on the one hand is Megan a mischievous manipulative overly ambitious greedy woman or the object of misogyny and racism so tina where do you come down on
1: that uh, on that debate well look i i think there's a bit of both of those things there Frankly, i mean i think that the press uh, the tabloid press certainly um when they decide on the narrative being negative which they often quickly do um, you know, they are misogynistic, they are brutal, they are um, racist. I mean, the press are, you know, treated her appallingly um, in the first, particularly in the first months of her being with Harry. And then then she became um, adored. But then when they felt that she was falling afoul of the, what they thought, you know, um, her role should be, um, they became very negative. And that essentially made her very insecure and very angry. So, it, you know, all of these things sort of fed on each other. But, I mean, the fact is, is that the Oprah interview was an absolute disaster for this couple in terms of both of them, in terms of being able to have any further successful, really successful relationship with the family. I mean, it was a year after they'd left. So the question is, what on earth was it for even? Why give this interview? There was no mm. earthly reason for it, except as a kind of... um Mean payback, frankly. And the family were just so wounded by the things that they said. And, of course, there were lots of very, very um, uh, uh, troubling allegations of, you know, racism and uh, and 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 Megan uh, being sort of abandoned when she uh, felt this tremendous depression. And yet, you know, frankly, you know, there was no comeback. Uh, I mean, you know, there was no 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 discussion of the fact that, uh, as you say, I mean when uh, Harry was was uh, had been involved in a charity called Heads Together with, with his brother, which was all about, um, you know, removing the stigma from mental health. And there were, you know, multiple people in that organisation that he knew who were very accomplished, uh, respected, and very discreet. You know, mental health experts, therapists, and so forth. The notion that 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 Meghan could not get any help, and in fact she said she went to the HR department. It just beggars belief, frankly. So, I mean, what was the motivation? You could only say, think that it was to cast aspersions on the family in a way that was very troubling to them all and still is, I think. Um, and uh, it will be very hard. I think that the other problem is that now that Harry has a, is writing a book, that's doubly problematic because I think that they could even have got past the Oprah interview, you know, with difficulty. But the fact that Harry has hanging over them now a book that he plans to write is sort of inconceivable, really, because, you know, here's Harry who's always complained about invasions of privacy and the terrible way that the press uh, constantly wrote about his life. Why is he now serving up, you know, the rest of his family to the same kind of um, hostile gaze and what's in it for him except money? And that's, of course, not appealing. And so, in fact, you know, the two of them are very, very unpopular at this point in the UK. And I want to go over that because
0: it's come up a couple of times and it's definitely throughout the book that one of the puzzles to me is the whole financial structure of the royal family, because there's way more revolving around money as drivers in all of these stories and and Meghan and Harry in particular than I might have thought. So how does it work? Like who gets free housing and what are these
1: allowances and who does have all the money? Well, I mean, the frustration for everyone who isn't the heir uh, to the throne in the family is that they are kept on a very tight string. Um, they have, a, if, they, if they perform royal services, they, 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 they get um, uh, a stipend from um, uh, uh, the sovereign grant uh, which, uh, you know, is not as much as you might expect. I mean, it's sort of in the region of about 250,000. It helps to pay their staffs and so on. Um, and they're not allowed to do to earn money. They do get um, free housing, yes, in, in very beautiful places. But, you know, it's frustrating for them. It, it's infantilizing for them. And they're always looking for ways to make money, which sort of almost... This is really was one of the biggest problems for Prince Andrew, you know, that he, that they, they mix with people whose lifestyle and whose cash uh, 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 sort of abilities are far greater than their own. You know, they, they have the status, but they don't have the fortunes. They don't have the private planes. They don't have to, you know, they have to essentially do a lot of very, very, uh, you know, dull, routine, uh, monotonous things, you know, all the time. In order to have this stipend and this and this, uh, you know, status and the this housing, so you know, there's there's an increasing sense, of course, in this more, um, you know, freewheeling and individualistic world that this is not a deal worth taking, essentially. And that's certainly <laughs> right. that, that is certainly what you know that's certainly what Megan and Harry felt. Megan certainly Megan coming in with with fresh eyes <laughs> said, "Wait a minute." know living in a kind of a multi-stately home or you know or equivalent of i mean in her case they they didn't even have i mean the apartment in Kensington Palace was not even going to be ready for three years or something because it had to be renovated and they were living in this very pretty beautiful you know house in in the grounds of Windsor but i mean you know there wasn't any cash to do you know there was no private planes there was no none of the things that she would have considered Um, the big payoff for for the life of, of, you know, serving the crown. Where was the payoff, you know? Um, And And Tina,
0: do you think she just figured wrong? Did she really not quite grasp that the access to money was going to be as limited as it was? Or did she have confidence in her own ability to leverage being a royal to create the ultimate celebrity financial platform.
1: Well, I mean, I think she was extremely hasty about it. You know, she saw she was 36. Her career really wasn't uh, going in, in a, any particularly big direction. Um, I'm sure Harry didn't spend a lot of time telling her that his own financial situation was going to be not particularly, you know, from her point of view, <laughs> impressive. And that, You know, she no doubt thought, we'll figure that out. We'll figure that out. Oh, we'll figure that out. Um, she did not seem to grasp that making deals was just going to be off the table, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. she, and, and so, yeah. I mean, there was a like,
0: naivety about both of them.
1: Both of them, both of them. And actually, you know, you really have to blame Harry for not saying to her, look, you know, are you sure you want this? Because, I mean, you know, after all, Meghan had earned her her her, her, her uh, own money ever since the age of 21 and was very successful. She'd done, you know, she'd she, she made a go of it, her life. Suddenly she was dependent on uh, unable to work herself uh, and dependent on uh, a husband who got basically got all his money from the bank of dad had to go have cap in hand to his father if he wanted to have a bigger, a bigger staff for his office or, you know, and, and they felt very much that, you know, they had to share an office with William and the personnel with William, and they felt they had a lot of star power and they wanted a bigger office in terms of, you know, staffing and, 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 uh, uh portfolio of opportunities and so on but they were the sort of junior partners in an underfunded enterprise in, in their mind so they, that that was how they <laughs> that's a great that they, line <laughs> yeah that's it they felt that very strongly and they weren't wrong as a matter of fact i mean in the case of andrew of course i mean he always went and, and you know and prince michael who is was a cousin of the queens i mean they're always being caught in these nefarious underhand sort of deals that they do trying to do deals off the radar as it were to sort of you know iffy consultancies with, you know, rather shadowy potentates and things. I mean, uh, you know, because they want more cash and they don't know how to get it. And it always gets them into trouble.
0: So, so there are two, two uh, topics I want to at least quickly get into. And they're the antithesis of each other. So on the one hand, I take it from reading the book that there's not one iota of a surprise to you about prince andrew cavorting uh with jeffrey epstein
1: well no i mean in a way you can see how the direct line through all this to jeffrey epstein because exactly his, because here's andrew who's always trying to make deals uh with people and you know oligarchs and, and all of these you know uh, strange kind of kazakhstan you know people and so forth who who used to come to to andrew and and let's face it anyone who wants to give uh, ridiculously lucrative deals to a member of the royal family isn't doing it because they like them they're doing it because they want the status <laughs> they want the you know they want the connections and they want you know they want to be able to uh, the honors etc which is what has got charles into trouble recently as well so Jeffrey Epstein was an obvious direct line for all this because Jeffrey Epstein sat there like a spider, trying to figure out, you know, how he would get more and more influential, uh, in either very well-connected people or very rich people, into his net to enhance his uh, uh, either his reputation or his bank balance. And Andrew, you know, was a perfect uh, enhancer for, for for Epstein. You know, I mean, he he he, as we know, he his girlfriend Ghislaine Maxwell was a friend of Andrew Andrew was a big white whale for 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 uh, uh a really great catch for uh that Ghislaine delivered up to um Epstein and and Epstein started to entertain Andrew all the time and Andrew would love uh you know the access to the money the deals and the girls and unfortunately um you know that's what got him into so much trouble essentially uh in terrible judgment and Jeffrey Epstein exploited every bit of it Now, 180 from
0: this are William and Catherine, who seem to have uh, taken on the whole royal role and attributes, and despite uh, Kate Middleton having been, as they say, a commoner, she seems to have either been wired or well-trained to
1: epitomize what you, what the queen would want from royalty. I know it's really stunning. I mean, you know, when when William married um Kate in 2012, I mean, the you know the, the questions were, you know, could a girl from a uh, you know who wasn't to the manor born, you know, who came from a, an affluent but middle class family, ever somehow rise to the position where she could have successfully be queen of England? And the answer now is. You know, how could how could we manage? How could the House of Windsor actually manage without Kate? Because she has turned out to be the one who really understands the role and has really accepted it. Um, she didn't have to take the role. So she was able to look at it for ten long years when William dated her. and she he 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 took that long to ask her to marry him because he wanted her to be sure. I mean, he with that kind of windsor uh, sort of uh, prudence and 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 sort of, Judgment wanted Kate to understand so thoroughly what she was getting into, because the last thing he wanted was what we saw with, with Harry and Meghan, which is a woman who came into the mix with false ideas of what it was going to be, and it all went wrong. He could not afford to have it go wrong, like the marriage of his father with Diana. So there was a long period of courtship where he really was kind of wanting Kate to understand what she got into. But Kate and Kate did study it and train and, uh, and figure it out and watch the queen closely and listen to the courtiers who she sought advice from and so on. And she has decided that she wants she's up for it. I mean, it's a remarkable thing really that this young, beautiful, modern, educated, because she, you know, probably the best, one of the best educated members of the royal family, I think actually is because she graduated from, you know, St. Andrews University with a, uh, a degree in history of art. I mean, she was very well educated, very smart. She could have got a job at anywhere. But uh, she has been uh, f- sort of focused essentially all of this time on learning how to do this role and marry William. And it's 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 so lucky for the family that that he found her, quite honestly, because, you know, if if it went wrong now, I mean, if the Cambridge marriage went wrong now, it will be an absolute death blow mm-hmm. to the House of Windsor. You know, I mean, there's been too much drama in the past. The Queen has had 70 years unblemished, We're going to have to have the transitional role of Charles and Camilla, which has been fraught and has been, you know, absolutely spattered with scandal all the way through, even though now it's in a kind of more of a glide path. The last thing that this country, that that England would would tolerate essentially, I think, is, you know, another terrible divorce in the family, Mm. uh, scandal, plagued situation. And the Cambridges right now are the hope of the House of Windsor. And it's a lot of pressure on them. It's a great deal of pressure, which I think, you know, is not without difficulties for for Kate. You know, I mean, it's, it's, there are times when you can see the strain on her, but she has really blossomed and has become more and more accomplished in her role. She's really flawless in that role. Uh, uh, Tina, before I
0: ask you the obvious and ultimate question, you know, we talked about the book deal that uh, Harry signed. I mean, that book deal, I mean, we don't know what's going to be in the book, obviously, but they didn't pay twenty two million dollars to have Harry talk about sports or a military career. And doesn't that feel like the final grenade in his relationship with William or his ever going back
1: into the into the fold? Well, it does. It's, I mean, Diana's last revenge (laughs) could be uh, the unseating finally of Charles. We don't know what he will say. Um, It's, 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 I personally still, I, I will believe the book when I see it in the sense that I cannot imagine how the family cannot try to figure out a way for him to be, you know, given incentives to not write it. But I think, you know, he's determined, he's very angry, Harry still, and he wants to throw that last grenade. So when that happens, I do think that's gonna be very difficult for him to go back.
0: You know, I read this little interesting thing the other day um, of course you never know whether it's made up or not but when it comes to the royals but that megan is getting a little bit worried about harry spending too much time back in england because there is an element of harry that must be homesick and yearn to be part of his family
1: well i think that's right i also don't think that the deals that they've made in Hollywood are going to be um, a satisfying uh, or perhaps not even successful route because it's very hard to make successful entertainment. We've seen no product yet. There's apparently a documentary. There's gonna be a reality kind of show, which is again, astounding to think they're letting cameras into their lives after all the talk about wanting privacy. Um, Megan had a Netflix deal uh, for an animated uh, film that has been cancelled because nothing was really forthcoming there has been the famous Spotify podcast that never seems to come forth You know, there is a sense that these deals could go south and there may not be a lot of other deals, they can get a lot of money from speaking now that COVID's over but you know in the end what's the the difference in getting money for speaking to maintain a lifestyle which frankly they Mm -hmm. could just have a very nice life without doing those things if they were royal um so i think yes i think that it's not in Meghan's interest particularly to go back to london uh but it is in harry's interest and um and i actually think on the other side i do think the royal family are going to need them when the queen dies because Mm -hmm. you know you saw in a sense the balcony on the jubilee take the queen out of the frame you know it wasn't enough not enough no, I mean, you've got Kate, who is absolutely the, the focus of it all. But you know, she's just herself, and she cannot take that whole load. It felt like it needed Harry and Meghan, at least until uh, uh, Prince George and Princess Charlotte and Prince Louis are old enough to take that burden. But there's about, it's only 10 years before the entire focus will be on who Prince George is dating. Um, but there are, there is that 10 years. And that's why I think they will need to have Harry and Meghan back. There has to be, there will be some kind of deal when the Queen dies. Well, and and it does,
0: you know, when I I thought about Harry and Meghan and them, you have a part in the book where you talk about, you know, they went for the flimsy, unsustainable life of Hollywood celebrity in lieu of the sturdy, steady um, celebrity of, royalty and there was something almost it, you could almost imagine a shakespearean tragic quality to the fact that at some point they realized they took the wrong deal um, and at a great cost
1: well that's absolutely right they did take the wrong deal if they had if they had just taken more care more patience mostly more patience i mean one of the things that i found so admirable about the queen and i really did come to love her by the end of the book um she knows how to play the long game mm-hmm. she plays the long game you know she she can see beyond the ephemeral beyond uh, uh you know the the baubles and she is so grounded and she understands that you have to be patient and uh i think what really um disappointed her was i mean you know when you think about it, you know Diana did give the royal family the monarchy seventeen years, right? And I mean, she didn't leave it actually, but she she got divorced. I mean, you know, she didn't want to leave it. she she wanted to stay married to Charles, actually. In the end, there was no course but for divorce. But you know she she was an exemplary Princess of Wales for seventeen years. Um, you know, and and she did all that that sort of drudgery round, and she just happened to bring her extraordinary uh, lustre to it and um she re- and she was a monarchist diana despite her th- hang, hand grenade throwing uh because of her her bitterness towards charles she was always a monarchist she didn't want she wanted william to be king she didn't you know she 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 was grooming always was grooming william to take the throne she wasn't encouraging william to give up the throne or indeed for harry to not consider himself an important part of the monarchy machine so you know she gave it a lot of time i mean meghan and harry you know gave it 20 months i mean Mm. megan gave it 20 months i mean that's two minutes i mean it's nothing i mean 20 months is you know she had a bumpy time but you know she always did her role very well nobody ever said she didn't do her role well whenever when when she went on tour of uh australia you know the commonwealth tour she did with harry she was absolutely superb i mean she was adored trouble was that she hated every minute of it (laughs) yeah and that there were these goodies uh, that she couldn't have, you know, which was the big deals. And, you know, I think that they, I don't know whether they really are willing to admit it yet, but I think that most people with any long game sort of perspicacity will look at what they've done and think you took the wrong deal, as you rightly say. Mm. So
0: the, the, the obvious question is, um, and, and you, 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 Uh, term it this way. The question of how the buffered institution can maintain its mystical stature after the queen dies has begun to creep through the British nation like a low-grade fever. How much tarnishing can, can the crown endure? So, Tina Brown, do you think the monarchy will shrink, survive, or morph?
1: I think it will morph and shrink a bit Uh, there is no future monarch um at any rate you know in our foreseeable future uh uh with the next two uh you know who uh is going to have the same gravitas the same you know circles of history around them the same extraordinary stature of the queen who ascended the throne at the age of 25 just after the second world war having lived through that uh, uh kind of milestone remarkable period in history, whose first prime minister was Winston Churchill and has had another 14 and soon to be 15 prime ministers since. So there'll be no monarch who obviously can occupy the space that the queen has. But I do think that there's no particular desire to end uh, the monarchy. It is focus for the national aspiration in uh, and, and um, uh, unity. You know, as we saw in the in the Jubilee, um, it is a rallying point for national feeling, and I do think that unless Charles does blows it in some way we can't, you know, yet know. Um, I think that he'll get through, but you know, the real focus will be on William and Kate, and I think that they're proving that they will be extremely accomplished in the role. Will they have the size of, of spotlight gravitas? No, they won't um and therefore inevitably it will shrink somewhat and i think that there will be a lot of modernization going on i mean the queen palaces the 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 you know the 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 major royal staffs etc it's going to shrink there's no doubt about it i mean queen charles is already thinking about turning balmoral castle into a museum for the queen um he's going to uh, you know buckingham palace is is undergoing a huge renovation which will uh, allow the public to come into much, much more of it. He will occupy an apartment on the top. Uh, you know, I think Sandringham he'll keep because he uh, that seems to be more of the private family home. But you know, Windsor Castle. It's interesting to see what will happen there. William and Kate are moving out of their house at Norfolk and are about to occupy a house on the grounds of Windsor Castle. It's thought that they might take up occupancy in the castle when the queen dies, but I also question whether they will, because I don't see Kate particularly wanting her children brought up at Windsor Castle. But we'll see. Um, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of more. There will be a lot of downsizing while attempting to keep, nonetheless, uh, enough of the pageantry and enough of the grandeur, you know, to still uh, make a state banquet. At, Buckingham Palace, probably the most desired invitation that any politician ever receives. Mm. Well, there's no
0: doubt there'll be enough new material for the media. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that's going to end, shrink, or morph in any way. No,
1: that certainly isn't. And of course, you know, when the Queen does pass, I mean, it's going to be the most amazing period of national mourning and national identity crisis and uh, global you know reflection on identity and and her amazing 70 years you know it is as i was reading as i was reading the
0: book which it, as i said i just loved what i learned and you know you couldn't make some of this stuff up but as an american it is challenging to really put your arms around what the monarchy means for england
1: well, I mean, you know, you know, it's a thousand years old, so it is the focus of uh, uh, and the sort of the link to the nation's history. You know, it's 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 uh, it's it's the British link to its own past, the British link to its own mm-hmm. history. And uh, furthermore, you know, the more that politicians lose stature, lose luster, you have to ask: Well, would the presidential system be so appealing to the to the British? I mean. Yeah, you only have to you only have to see the cheers for the Queen and the booze for Boris Johnson when he showed up at the uh, uh, the the celebration of the Queen's reign to, to know that people the difference the difference and you know the continuity that the monarchy represents is I think very reassuring to people at a time when um, there's so much instability. Even though, of course, you know you can mock it's uh, it's 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 failings and it's uh you know and it's um pageantry and all the things you can mock nonetheless you you know the answer is those crowds that came out for the jubilee i mean you cannot you cannot yeah. uh they can't be denied well tina um
0: not only thank you for your time but you know i was reminded reading uh the book that you do bring a your sparkling language i mean the wit in yeah, your so- writing just never ceases to um, entertain and and surprise me with its with its energy. but you you do, as I said in the introduction, you take a very humanistic, I mean, you're a journalist. um and the fact that you I, I walked away from the book with a sense of um the humanity of all of them, even the ones that seem, frustratingly crazy, (laughs) uh, that you get a sense that there are people, you know, trying to move through very public, difficult, uh, complicated histories. So, you know, thank you for that. Thank Thank you for taking uh, the time today, Tina.
1: Thank you so much for being such an astute and appreciative reader, Roxanne, as you always are. Thank you. Thanks so much.
0: You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by LitHub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selick, Johnny Diamond, and LitHub Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.